picture, if you will, the long-awaited return of the first person to travel into the future. He's coming back to a time not far off from our own, but he has ventured far into the next chapter of human history. He steps out of the capsule that he entered just moments ago, and his face is weary and pale. But he recovers quickly, and as weeks pass, he gets to work documenting everything that he saw. He had materialized within the walls of a great metal metropolis where the people of tomorrow live otherworldly lives. He writes the following in a report on the future economy. Quote, They work a lot less than we do, and their work is hard to distinguish from what we regard as play. Leisure is abundant, and there is a greater amount of sleep in the daytime per capita than in any condition of modern society. They work an average of only four hours a day, assuming they were working at all. Their labor, as it appeared to me, was skilled labor, which exercised their physical and intellectual capacities. And so then what about the world today? One third to one half of humanity are said to go to bed hungry every night. Yet these people can look forward to the next day, free of care, end quote. So it seems like our time-traveling friend was given hope by his experience, the knowledge that better times were ahead for mankind. Unfortunately, of course, at least here in 2019, we have no such privilege in the real world. Those words, however, weren't fiction. They were excerpts from the writings of a real-world explorer by the name of Dr. Richard Lee. He too stepped into a world completely foreign to the one we know, but it was no great metropolis. So, where was it? All right, so I'll cut the act now. Dr. Richard Lee was in some senses an explorer, but he is better known as a longtime anthropologist at the University of Toronto. He specializes in economic anthropology, which means he examines economic behaviors outside the scope of any specific culture or period of time. In the 1960s, Lee traveled to the Kalahari Desert of Namibia, and he lived with and observed the communities of Bushmen there. These indigenous people still live out hunter-gatherer lifestyles to this day. They rejected the Neolithic Revolution in favor of lives that are seemingly transposed into the modern day from thousands of years ago. It's like finding a box of baby pictures in a dusty attic. The Bushmen offer a strangely introspective look into the very earliest days of organized humanity. You know, from our ivory pillars and our Apple stores, it can be pretty easy to shake our heads at these people when we first hear about them. Some probably even regard them with contempt, because while their communities must be rampant with famine and suffering, perhaps no more than a few hundred miles away, there might stand a McDonald's that could solve all of those issues for them. Why live on the brink of starvation, in such isolated and unforgiving conditions, when the whole of the modern world stands just beyond the horizon? But Dr. Lee, he didn't regard from afar. He went there himself, and he met the Bushmen. What he found is that they lead what can really only be called a truly affluent existence. Each member of the camp, regardless of their ability to contribute work, was accounted for. The elderly and disabled had company throughout the day, tending to children if they could, and being left to rest if they could not. And the very idea of starvation completely vanishes once you step foot in one of these communities. 
Hunts occur only a couple times a week and rarely last longer than an afternoon, but each provides enough food to sustain the camp for upwards of a week. The average able-bodied man may spend no more than 10 hours each week obtaining and preparing food, and some are observed taking entire weeks off of work. And so what then do they do with all this time? While some days are spent visiting other camps or making tools, much of the Bushman's life is spent in total leisure, sometimes napping through mornings and into the afternoon. These reports by Dr. Lee really challenged the classical ideas of early human life in the 60s and present some pretty big mental hoops to jump through for anyone still wanting to think of history as one continuous progression through better and wealthier societies. In 1972, another anthropologist by the name of Dr. Marshall Sollins took Lee's papers and ran with them. He presented his conclusions in a bombshell lecture titled The Original Affluent Society, which became the name of the theory that he is most known for today. The original affluent society. Is this truly a vision of the future? Like the Earth, which looks flat up close, but round far enough away, has human history been one big loop back to where we started? Well, it seems like the idea is everywhere in media. Whether it's the 1887 novel Looking Backward, which depicted the year 2000 as a workless socialist utopia, or just the movie WALL-E, the lazy man's world always seems right around the corner. But when we really look around us, can we be so sure? The world is changing quickly, and while the Bushmen may have found a strong branch to cling onto, the rest of us are along for the ride. In case you're wondering, Marshall Sollins and Richard Lee are still practicing anthropology today at the University of Chicago and the University of Toronto, respectively. The original affluent society began as a controversial theory, but has become more mainstream in recent years. Dr. Lee eventually called Namibia his second home, and you can read about his time there in his book, Eating Christmas in the Kalahari. Today, we're going to be discussing the long and winding histories of work, labor, money, and robots, and how what it means to be a valuable member of society is changing every day, regardless of if we notice it or not. We'll be taking a look at some of the careers that history has left behind, and then considering what the future holds as metal muscles and silicon brains send in their applications for the jobs we all rely on. Is a final affluent society looming somewhere on the horizon? And if it is, will we even be able to recognize ourselves by the time we get there? From Chile, Ithaca, New York, I'm Blake Galley, and you're listening to State of the Pod. Chapter 1, The Luddite Fallacy Hey, do you know those two little parallel lines you sometimes see in the side of graphs? I've also seen them drawn as little lightning bolts. You usually see them on the axes of something like a bar chart or a histogram, and they're there to indicate a jump in scale so that both big and small numbers can be read on the same graph. 
It only took a couple of Google searches to find out that the mark was originally called a Sejura. That's C-A-E-S-U-R-A. That was when it was used in European poetry to mark the ends of verses. By the way, I'm totally making Sejura my word of the day today. So I'm bringing up Sejuras because there's going to be a lot of them today. If you tried to look at human history in its entirety, you'd barely even be able to make out the modern era at the very tail end of a 100,000-year-long story. The people and places we're going to be talking about today are just needles in a haystack 100 billion people wide and seven continents deep. So I could never possibly cover everything that maybe I'd want to in a perfect world. Sejuras let a long story be told in two places at once. You don't need everything in between. So with that being said, we're moving now from the prehistoric plains of Namibia, across a Sejura, and into the Middle Ages, where Johannes Gutenberg's printing press is about to change the world. Before the printing press, of course, books were written by hand. By the time of Gutenberg, books had pretty much evolved into the form factor that we know today, but they were still painstakingly written and copied by highly trained and educated scribes. Most of these scribes were monks living in monasteries, and these monks represented one of the largest groups of literate and skillfully employed people in the Middle Ages. Monastic scribes typically worked for over six hours a day and were overseen by meticulous rule books and guidelines, which meant that the exquisite transcriptions often took weeks to complete. The scribe monk, however, made exactly the same salary as the farming monk. They weren't slaves, as were the scribes of ancient Rome, but they worked only for their heavenly reward. Under the gray shadow of the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages, skilled labor didn't mean big paychecks or job security. Those socioeconomic forces just didn't exist in that environment. Most scribe monks were pretty much out of a job after Gutenberg came around. In what were perhaps the first technological layoffs, writes Dr. Jerry Waite of the University of Houston, rooms of monks were put out of work all at once. And indeed, the respect and influence wielded by the monks slowly diminished, as the number of copyists in the ranks of the Catholic Church was decreasing with each passing day by the turn of the 16th century. There are only scattered reports on the monks' reaction to Gutenberg's printing press. Maybe in a different era, they would have loudly and publicly gone on strike. Just look at the taxi driver strikes in the wake of Uber. But you have to remember that these people were monks, and they were working in the name of God. And so the best that we have to work with today are a couple of disgruntled comments from the monks who maybe didn't think that running their mouth in the press would count as one of the seven deadly sins. I'll get to some of those quotes soon, but first I'd like to take a small detour and talk about some of the books that these monks were actually copying down. Okay, so I'm a pretty big science nerd. I'm actually majoring in physics right now, and so names like Copernicus and Newton and Archimedes are all over my lecture notes. I'm genuinely really grateful for the opportunity to come to university and study the physics that these guys discovered. The problem is that, for most of human history, that wasn't possible for most people. After ideas formed in the minds of these great philosophers and scientists, 
they would stay perched above the general public, making their way through affluent circles, but almost never into the eyes and ears of the common people. So over time, books copied down by diligent monks became the most important medium for people outside the highest echelons of society to maybe get a peek at what humans were learning about our world. Some of these books have of course become very famous, even hundreds of years after they were written. Newton's Principia Mathematica and Copernicus's On the Revolutions of Heavenly Spheres come to mind. But there's one book that took an unusually long time to enter the public consciousness. Actually, I had never even heard of it before, and so I asked some of my fellow podcasters if they had. Right, so I'm here with Krithik. He's another one of the podcasters here. Hi. Uh, Krithik, remind me again what you're majoring in? I'm majoring in electrical and computer engineering. Uh, just uh, out of curiosity, do you have any sort of favorite mathematicians or scientists that you look up to? Mm, uh, I guess I'd say Alan Turing. Alan Turing, that's a good one. Yeah. Now, you've heard of Archimedes, right? The great philosopher and physicist, right? I have. Have you heard of The Palimpsest by Archimedes? Uh, Could you say that again? The Palimpsest. P-A-L-I-M-P-S-E-S-T. The Palimpsest. I haven't. You no. have not. Interesting. It's a... It's actually a hugely influential publication by Archimedes in 3rd century BC. It's interesting that you haven't heard of it. Alright, so what the heck is the Archimedes Palimpsest, and why am I bringing it up? Well, it was written, of course, by Archimedes sometime in the 3rd century BC. The Palimpsest contains remarkable proofs of theorems that wouldn't be revisited by calculus for centuries, and descriptions of mechanical systems that fit right in with modern methods. So then, why hasn't anyone heard of it? Well, it was thought that all physical copies had been lost to time. That was until the 19th century, when a German scholar happened to notice mathematical symbols written underneath the main text of a prayer book from the 13th century. The book exchanged hands for decades until technology caught up to the point where the entire hidden text underneath could be deciphered. That process began in 1998, and over the course of nearly a decade, page after page of spectacular mathematical work by the great Archimedes was scanned and digitized. That's the palimpsest. I should tell you now that the word palimpsest refers to parchment which has been washed and erased for reuse. That was a practice common among the monastic scribes in the days when parchment was a limited and valuable resource. So, somewhere in Europe, in a monastery room filled with scribes, there once sat a monk, nonchalantly washing away some of the most important and profound mathematics ever put to parchment. I think now would be a good time to read you a quote by Johannes Trithemius. He was the head of a prominent monastery of German scribes around the same time that the printing press was gaining prominence. Brace yourself for some good old-fashioned passive aggressiveness. Who doesn't know how great is the distance between a scribe and a printed book? The scripture on parchment can persist a thousand years, but on paper, how long will it last? It is a great thing if a paper volume lasts 200 years, but many are those who judge that their own text ought to be printed. Posterity will judge this question. Indeed, posterity did judge Tothemius's question. His words have only managed to persevere into the year 2019 because they themselves were printed on the hot metal of a Gutenberg printing press, on the pages of Trithemius's book, which was amusingly titled In Praise of Scribes. The Archimedes Palimpsest was 
not so lucky. And hearing its story probably would have made Trithemius red in the face. Because, in retrospect, the monks being put out of work, and even losing that art form of scribing, is probably a small price to pay for avoiding the pitfalls of human error. Oh, and it only took a few decades for the church to embrace the printing press anyways, and monks were soon busy mass-producing copies of the Bible that spread all around the world. Today, we can laugh at how ego and an unwillingness to accept change blinded people like Trithemius. His prediction couldn't have been more wrong, but why should we expect anything else? The world that he was born into was one where the value of written works came from the affluence, education, and appreciation for fine art that they represented to those lucky enough to own them. But the world that he grew into, and eventually left, was one where Gutenberg's 95 theses spread through the European peasantry in a matter of months, and literacy became a standard for the modern citizen instead of a privilege for the wealthy. And so just as the printing press changed the world, the world adapted and allowed the printed word to flourish. There's a common theme that tends to underlie these adaptations. Money. It's what makes the world go round. It's what drives us forward. And as political economist Joseph Schumpeter points out, sometimes it's what holds us back. Quote, It was not the lack of inventive ideas that set the boundaries for economic development, but rather powerful social and economic interests promoting the technological status quo. Did Trithemius take time out of his day to meet with printing press experts to make sure that he got all the right facts and the durability of paper versus parchment? Well, more likely, he was just doing his job as a person of power and influence. Or in other words, a spokesperson for the status quo. What tends to finally outweigh the power of the status quo is what lies on the other side once it's been left behind. Sure, it might take a good amount of work to reform and readjust, but the work saved in the period that follows has almost always dwarfed what it took to get there. That's the most fundamental driving force, according to some economists, the desire to do less work. Sure, the printing press caused short-term damage to the monk economy, but once it was firmly instituted, tremendously more books and newspapers and every other form of printed word could be produced for a fraction of the costs in labor, money, and time. Forces like this are pushing and pulling on our world every day. But sometimes when things change too quickly for a single generation to adjust, that's when even those who should know better tend to make laughably inaccurate predictions. To see what I'm talking about, we can take another short walk across a Sejura and into the modern era, where technological progress has been accelerating so fast that there is a seemingly never-ending supply of haughty predictions. For example, said the editors of the New York Times in 1903, quote, The flying machine which will really fly might be evolved by the combined and continuous efforts of mathematicians and mechanicians in one million to ten million years. Later that same year, the Wright brothers flew at Kitty Hawk. There are those who don't see technological change coming, and then there are those who try to stand against it. Of all the flavors of technological naysayers, one surfaces so frequently that history has given them a name. A Luddite is a person who is opposed to new technology, or generally new ways of working. The Luddite fallacy is this belief put into more concrete terms. It's the perception that new technologies decrease the amount of work available, and thus remove jobs from an economy. 
It's called a fallacy because it's been wrong every time so far. Some of the best and earliest evidence against modern Luddism can be found in autobiographies and memoirs written by working-class Brits during the Industrial Revolution. First of all, that these memoirs exist at all represents an incredible departure from the poor and illiterate face of the working class that had persisted for centuries in Europe. New opportunities and new heights to reach. The memoirs tell stories of farmers putting generations of poverty behind them, moving to cities and finding work in one of the dozens of trades that were just then finding a foothold for actual profitability. More than anything, reports the BBC, the autobiographers indicate that industrialization and the urban growth that accompanied it increased the amount of work available. But we can't keep looking backwards forever. It's about time we cross another Sejura and start wondering if the past can really tell us anything about the new frontier that we face in the 21st century. The Luddites are lining up again, and this time, they are really sounding all the alarms. Let's talk about it. Chapter 2, The New Frontier I don't want to beat around the bush much longer. The last century has been fast, turbulent, and above all, weird. And I'll try to channel some of that energy as we move forward. Here's a fact for you. The Industrial Revolution never stopped happening. It just became the new normal. Productivity keeps on rising while the work we put in to make it happen keeps going down. Even in just the past 50 years, Agricultural output has more than doubled, while the number of farmers has decreased by 90%. Other industries like manufacturing and distribution report similar numbers. And the industries that are growing in manpower? All professional, administrative, and service-oriented. Nine out of every 10 new jobs created in 2017 went to those with a college degree. And that figure has been rising an average of 10% every year since 2010. And much further back? Well, after World War II, less than a quarter of Americans had even graduated high school. It turns out education is actually the fastest growing commodity of the past century, and it's not even close. But here's the paradox. As the public gets more saturated with college grads, who are each qualified for more skill-intensive jobs than either their parents or grandparents, the relative value, and sometimes even skill, that these degrees represent goes down. It's difficult to take a definitive stance on if college degrees are still worth it, but now that one in every three job-seeking Americans come with a diploma, having one no longer makes you stand out. This saturation means that not every job which on paper requires a college degree is truly skill-intensive. A key observation is that it's more so the types of skills being employed that have changed. Things like leadership and communication are of course becoming more valuable. But so are more subtle traits, like reading comprehension and active listening, according to a study at Georgetown. But as these skills spread through the population, are they really being put to all that good of a use? David Graeber doesn't think so. He's an anthropologist out of London, although he attended the University of Chicago, so I wonder if he ever met Marshall Solins. And he recently wrote a book all about BS jobs, although he used more than just the two letters. In it, he validates every receptionist who feels like they're stuck watching a silent phone, every business report that will never be read, 
and anyone who's ever walked out of a meeting with a pounding headache, wondering what they just spent the past four hours doing. Graeber writes that maybe we can blame technology for the rise of BS. He believes that the dazzling efficiencies produced by technology have been funneled and reinvested into growth instead of actually eliminating labor. Our incessant need to be occupied with something, anything, combined with an exploding population and the decline of sectors like agriculture, means that at some point we ended up sticking people with work for the sake of work and investing in growth for the sake of growth. It's as if, he writes, businesses were endlessly trimming the fat on the shop floor and using the resulting savings to acquire even more unnecessary workers in the office upstairs. So how can we reconcile rising global productivity with rising levels of BS work? Well, okay, the answer is obvious to anyone not living under a rock in the 21st century. The real nitty-gritty work is still getting done, but now it's by machines and computers. And it's not always entirely clear exactly where human influence stops and a machine takes over. For example, almost all modern stock trading is done at the speed of light by computers these days. But to an uninformed outsider on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, which is still flooded with hundreds of people shouting into the air and stock prices scrolling across massive screens, it looks like people are still trading on the front lines today. In reality, the whole operation is mostly just a television set these days. The stock exchange maintains a tip-top brand, bolstered by the over 30 media outlets with a round-the-clock presence on the floor, and as of 2012, even a few permanent television sets. It's kind of surreal, humans putting on a show to talk themselves into believing that they haven't been replaced. In most other places, machines are still announcing their presence. Hi, I'm your automated order taker. Take your time, order when you're ready. Can I have a breakfast burrito? We serve chorizo, egg and cheese. No problem. Can I get you anything else? That's it, check out. I have one sausage burrito combo with coffee, is that correct? Yup. Thank you. That clip is part of an ad put out by Valiant AI. It may sound a little bit silly now, but they've poured a huge amount of thought into the dynamics of that fast food ordering interaction. Those little inflections and pauses were all meticulously chosen to humanize the AI. And although the voice itself still seems a little bit off, artificial in a way, the way it creates sentences isn't robotic. It doesn't use the minimum number of words, and it sometimes pads out thoughts with filler in the same way that real people do all the time. Rob Carpenter is the founder of Valiant, and he says that so far, the system has been taking friction out of interactions between customers and employees. It's human in all the ways that matter for keeping people happy. But as he points out, the AI never gets offended, and it will just keep talking to you in a very calm and friendly voice no matter what happens. He's adamant that his robotic worker is not intended to take people's jobs. In fact, he says it's supposed to make the fast food employee's life easier. Valiant's website reads, quote, Increased competition has made it harder than ever to find and retain the best talent for your business. With conversational AI, the drudgery of taking 400 customer orders over the course of a shift is reduced. This leaves your team free to focus on payment processing, order accuracy, and customer engagement. My first thought after reading that quote 
is that payment processing and order accuracy seem like even easier areas for robots to take over. So while it would obviously be a PR disaster if Valiant just came out and said that human fast food workers are on their way out, doesn't it seem kind of obvious from the outside? And companies have always been modest in the media about the technological change that they pioneer. It's just safer that way. For example, in 2007, the founder and CEO of Netflix called the market for online streaming microscopic, and he reaffirmed that, quote, DVD is going to be a very big market for a very long time. And then, less than three years later, streaming became Netflix's biggest business. Anyways, robots are getting pretty good at customer service these days. Whether it's the Savvy One hotel room service bot, which, by the way, sounds like this. Or just a tech support chatbot with a too generic to be real name like Josh Smith. We're interacting with more and more computers where we might not expect them. Are we losing something of value here? Right now, it's a fun novelty having your burger delivered by a smiling Roomba. But somewhere down the line, are we going to miss these little moments of human interaction? So far, I think I'm torn. On one hand, we've been expediting our day-to-day -day lifestyles for decades now. I mean, I don't think many people miss needing to wait for an employee to pump your gas for you. Although, that still happens in New Jersey for God knows what reason. On the other, rates of loneliness are on the rise as part of the millennial mental health epidemic. And for some, maybe a smile from the grocery store cashier can be a ray of light in a bleak day. Amazon, at the very least, doesn't see it that way. In case you missed it, Amazon has been in the process of opening some brick-and-mortar stores called Amazon Go in a few major cities this year. These are the first truly autonomous stores. That means that instead of checking out, you just take what you need from the shelves and walk out. No questions asked and no human interaction. The catch, and of course there's a catch, is that the whole store is dotted in ultra-high-resolution cameras that watch and log what each customer is taking. And to get into the store, you need to link your Amazon account to your physical presence by scanning a barcode on your phone as you enter the store. Reception to the optimized shopping experience has been overwhelmingly positive so far. Here are some customer reactions from a CBC News segment on the day that the first Amazon Go store opened in Seattle. I walked out with these two things in a matter of 30 seconds. It's really nice. It, it skips a lot of time and everything. It's a, definitely fun to walk out without any talking to anybody. And that's been the trend everywhere I look. People don't seem to miss genuine human-to-human -human customer service. The most common source of criticism for robot replacements seems to come from bloggers who haven't actually experienced them. That R2-D2 sounding room service robot got 95% five-star ratings during a trial run in California. According to one hotel that started using them, quote, the only humans who seemed to respond negatively to the bot appeared to be inebriated. Their impatience with the machine's delivery time was duly noted, end quote. It hasn't even been a century since the word robot entered the English language. And now, unless you're drunk, most of us are totally fine with interacting with them as if they were 
us. There has to be a boundary to all of this, right? Some line in the sand that keeps machines out of our territory, that reminds us that some things are still uniquely human. Maybe there is, but maybe the tide is coming to wash it away. It might be more comforting to turn our backs to the waves and feel some pride looking down at our line. But I think it's more brave, more human, to turn around and face what's coming. Chapter 3, Second Place There's a thought experiment that's commonly thrown around to dispute the idea that any machine or AI could ever achieve true consciousness or humanity. It's called the Chinese Room Argument, and it goes something like this. Imagine a large black box the size of a room, with a slot where one can insert pages of Chinese text. Questions, queries, comments anything written in Chinese. And a few minutes later, out of another slot, the box produces another page, upon which is written its response to whatever you gave it. Suppose the machine's responses are so convincing, so filled with nuance and thought and emotion, that it is indistinguishable from any Chinese-speaking human. Curious about how the box works, you ask the inventor what's inside. He presents you with two scenarios, but will not tell you which one is the truth. The first scenario is that within the box resides a complex artificial intelligence, painstakingly created and perfected until it seemingly achieved consciousness. The other scenario is that within the box is just a man who doesn't speak a lick of Chinese and a book of instructions. When the box receives a new input page, the man inside opens up the instruction book and finds the pages that tell him how to respond to each line of Chinese text. He puts together the characters that the book tells him to, and then ejects the finished output page out of the room. The inventor tells you that it would be foolish to try to figure out which scenario is true, because they are completely and utterly indistinguishable. Your mind spins at this idea, but eventually you accept it and go on wondering what the true nature of the Chinese room is. The Chinese room argument proposes that no artificial intelligence, no machine, could ever be proven to have what we call humanity, or a mind. Any such machine, it says, would be identical to just a person following predetermined rules, with no motivation, personality, or emotion behind them. So maybe there's a line around consciousness, or humanity, that machines will never cross. But in the meantime, how close might they get? People are already getting emails from corporate telling them which jobs and even which people are at most risk of computerization. The general consensus seems to be that computers are best at taking over tasks which are routine and predictable. They're also good at clearing up human error and at processing more information all at once than one person ever could. This makes them well-suited for big data jobs like fraud detection, law, finance, and medical diagnoses. 
This also means that a huge amount of effort has been put into turning non-routine tasks into well-defined problems that a computer can understand. That means we're turning the real world, with all of its nuance and complexity, into compact lines of code. Cool stuff, but also kind of scary, right? When I think of jobs that I don't think computers will ever take over, the first ones that usually come to mind have something to do with creativity or human ingenuity. Even modern AI is typically seen as a cold, calculating algorithm, and it doesn't seem possible for such a thing to have an idea or be creative. So when I first heard music composed by an AI, my heart kind of sunk for a moment. Music is so human. It was invented to bring people together, to move our bodies to the beat, and to fill the air with the sounds of our voices. There's something sad about the idea of a future where the great composers sit on silicon chips in empty rooms. Is the music at least good? Well, you tell me. You've been listening to it for the past minute or so, underneath the sound of my voice. Go ahead and rewind a little bit, and then come back with your thoughts. Not so bad, is it? I paid about eight bucks on a website called Ecret Music, E-C-R-E-T-T, which I've linked in this episode's notes. And for that price, I was able to compose 10 different tracks that each blew me away with just how real the music sounded for being composed by an algorithm. The rest of the music in this episode is going to be composed by an AI. So keep listening and start expanding what you think is possible. Before things wrap up for today, I really want to say thank you so much to everyone who made it this far. I really enjoyed making this episode, and I hope you enjoyed listening to it too. I also want to say thanks to my fellow podcasters for lending me their voices, and especially to Union and the rest of the executive producers for really bringing this whole podcasting operation together. Thanks guys, I'm really looking forward to the next season. Alright, now we're going to start heading back to where we started and then I'll send you all off. You know, none of this stops with customer service or with any one robot or any one job. For one, Interacting emotionally with computers is turning into a fully-fledged part of society. Some are calling this trend the empathy economy, basically the growing monetary value of emotional interaction, even if it's with a machine. It's a symptom of growing loneliness and social isolation, which just might be the flagship mental health issues of the 21st century. It's why, in Japan, people are finding earnest careers as friends for hire, making $50 an hour to give people the care and friendship that they aren't finding elsewhere in life. It's why digital assistants are making waves in how we care for the elderly, giving our aging citizens tablets and Alexas to keep them engaged and communicating. It's why I find myself being polite to robot voices over the phone, and why so many people have screensavers that tell them good morning and ask how they are doing. 
And it's why some research suggests that people are more honest in therapy sessions when they believe they are confessing their troubles to a computer. Because, well, a machine can't pass moral judgment. But all of this also means that fewer and fewer people are sitting in assembly lines, or cubicles. More people are getting educated and obtaining dreams that would have been thought impossible just 50 or 100 years ago. People are making decent livings, showing the world their passions on YouTube or selling their crafts on Etsy. People are arguably busier than they've ever been before. It's just that now we have to try a little bit harder to find out what it is that we exactly want to be busy with. I'm grateful for that choice. Billions of peasants across the world have lived and died without that choice. The monks certainly didn't have that choice. And many of our own parents and grandparents didn't have that choice. But now some of us do. And so where are we headed now? The Bushmen of Namibia, if you remember, give us one idea of a possible future, where everyone has complete freedom of choice, and it turns out that everyone makes the same decision. What do I want to be busy doing? Eh, well, nothing at all, really. I'd rather take a nap, says the Bushman. Sounds nice, but it also sounds kind of boring. In the modern Western world, the term guilty couch potato has been coined to describe the feeling that people have after using media like television or video games to relax, but who often feel worthless when reflecting on their unproductive downtime. I don't think that we could handle that feeling 24-7, so we had better keep ourselves at least a little busy. With that, I've been Blake Galley. This has been State of the Pod. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next season. Thank you.